turn with me in your Bibles now to Psalm 58. And I would encourage you to keep them open because I'm going to be making a number of references to this psalm as we go along. Psalm 58. To the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a miktam of David. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No. In your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom like the venom of a serpent like the deaf adder that stops its ear so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. O oh God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O oh Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime. Like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, Surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. Thus far the reading. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this portion of your word, which was read and heard read. Pray that you will instruct our hearts by it tonight and give Dr. DeYoung the words to speak so that we will hear your truths for us and take it throughout this week and apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A couple of weeks ago when Pastor Bob asked me to lead the worship service tonight, a couple of things happened in quick succession. First of all, there was a horrible, tragic action in Christchurch, New Zealand. A man from Australia went across to New Zealand and opened up on, in that mosque and killed at least 50 people. And then there were about even more than that injured. Then on Easter morning in Sri Lanka, just outside of India, a whole bunch of Muslims attacked Christian churches and hotels and there were over 300 killed and over 500 injured. And they said that was payback for what happened in Christ Church. We're going to not only get even, we're going to get even with the vengeance. And then shortly after that, there was a shooting in 
Southern California. You've all had a sheet in your mailboxes. I trust you've read it. There was an 18-year-old young man, very handsome, very athletic looking, who went into a synagogue and opened fire, killing Jews. He only killed a few. He injured some, but some brave soul attacked him and drove him out of the synagogue, and then he went down the street in his car, and not too far down the road, he decided to pull off, and he called the police and said, I'm here, I'm the one who did it, come and get me. And they promptly took him and took away his guns and brought him to the police station. That man, that young man, was a member of our OPC church in Escondido, California. His father was one of the elders, is one of the elders. In some circles, that created a horrible reputation for the OPC. What does the Orthodox Presbyterian Church teach those young people? Thankfully, as the sheet in your mailboxes points out, the session, the pastor there of that church and also our denominational office immediately send out messages. We in no way condone this. We never teach violence. It is not our job to be executioners for God. This man was totally wrong. He must be punished. He must be brought to trial. You stop and think, wait a minute, how do you and I respond to this spiritual warfare that's going on in our world and in our country? I know some people. I don't want to see any evil. I don't want to hear any evil. I don't want to smell any evil. It's nice out. It isn't, folks. There is a tremendous hostility against God and against his laws. There is so much lawlessness in our country. It takes on a variety of forms. Last week we were in Reno, Nevada. Casinos everywhere. You can't walk into a gas station and you're tempted to gamble. A lot of states, a number of states in the South, have passed legislation saying that it is going to be a felony if you perform an abortion. Any doctor who performs an abortion is going to go to jail. And you say, goody? Is that going to happen? Will this get to the Supreme Court? Will we finally overturn Roe v. Wade? Maybe. I can pray for that, and I do pray for that. But you and I live in a world where there's tremendous hostility against God, against his laws. Vast numbers of people are living in rebellion against him. And sometimes you say, I need to do something. What can I do? I need to, well, as a good Reformed believer, I need to turn to God's word. 
God's Word gives us answers to all of life's issues. Sometimes uh, pretty easy, pretty clear. And sometimes you say, well, that's kind of hard to find. It so happened that Wilma and I, over the last months, have been reading through the Psalms. And almost every week we come across one of these imprecatory songs. And you say, hmm. We had read Psalm 58 a while back. How do I respond to that? I've never heard anybody before preach on these imprecatory songs. I'm sure there are some who dare. But when we look at these, we need to try to understand a couple of things. That's why on your outline I say there are needs for definitions. When you look at Psalm 58, it says, this is a miktam of David. What's a miktam? I have four Bible dictionaries on my computer. Not one of them has an entry for miktam. So I called Mid-America Seminary, talked to the professor of Hebrew. I said, Mark, What's a miktam? He said, I don't know. But there are a number of psalms that are called miktams. I asked Pastor Bob this morning, and he said, uh, it's a musical term. Oh, might be. It seems as though this is a term that only applies to about six psalms most of them written by David. And it seems there are some commentaries who suggest that this is a very secretive and a very personal kind of psalm. Not one that he wanted broadcast and advertised all over, but something that was very personal. I think that's helpful, but don't bank on it. We also need to look at that word Imprecatory. What is an imprecatory psalm? The shortest definition I can give you is that an imprecatory psalm is a prayer. Never lose sight of that. It's a prayer specifically addressed to God, asking God to bring curses on his enemies. There's an acknowledgement that God has enemies. And if you know that God has enemies, then oftentimes those are also the enemies of God's people. And they become our enemies as well. David is talking about enemies that he had. And he's praying to God that God would bring calamities, difficulties, curses on the lives of those people. But then you say, what's a curse? Can I, as a Christian, pronounce a curse? And I would have to say, no. That's not our job to pronounce curses. But God does 
pronounce curses and sometimes multiple curses in many ways. Go with me for just a minute to Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28 is a passage dealing with covenant theology. And the first part of that, the first 14 verses of Deuteronomy 28, are all about blessings that God would shower on his people when they obey him. If you obey God, you will be blessed. But when you get to 15, and then take it all the way to the end of the chapter, and you'll notice that there are 68 verses, all the way from 15 to 68, these are curses. God is saying, if you are living in rebellion, if you are living in sin, I will bring curses into your life. Now, when you talk about curses, you have to recognize that these are temporal, temporal kinds of punishments that God inflicts on people with the purpose of bringing them to repentance. If you think of the ten plagues that God brought against the Egyptians, those first nine are curses. Nobody needed to die, but they had all kinds of difficulties. They had flies, they had frogs, they had water turning to blood, they had all kinds of difficulties. Those were curses, but nobody in Egypt was willing to repent. Nobody came to repentance, so God then says, all right, I will now send number 10, and that is going to bring death. Death is an eternal punishment. Once you die, there's no chance for repentance. Those first nine are curses against God's people designed to bring them repentance. They don't repent. God says, all right, now you're going to get death. And that comes through that tenth plague. David is asking God to bring curses on his enemies. When I decided that an imprecatory psalm would be appropriate, one of the first ones that came to mind was Psalm 139. If you have your Bibles open, turn there with me for just a minute. Psalm 139 is a beautiful psalm about the way in which God creates and forms life in the womb. It's a powerful argument against abortion. And we normally read through it and we stop there at verse 18 and say, oh, what a beautiful psalm. But you've got to go on. Look at verse 19 and following. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. 
Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. That's a powerful statement. God is saying, I create people. I create persons in the womb. Don't you go messing with them. Because if you do, I'm going to bring curses into your lives. Psalm 139 is, in a sense, too complicated to use as my text for tonight. So I'm going to be simply go back to Psalm 58 and use that as my basic text. In order to understand Psalm 58, you need to have some background. This is a psalm that David wrote when he was relatively young. Saul is king. And David has become very popular with the people. He has been lauded as having so many you know, victories and so many. Saul becomes envious and said, that man is going to take my throne. He is going to come and take my throne away. I have to stop him. So as near as we can tell, Saul appoints a number of judges, what some texts call a congregation, what we might think of as a supreme court. And Saul asks them to make decisions about David. And they declare that David is guilty of treason. He is a traitor against the king and a traitor against the... And the penalty for treason is death. Anybody who finds David on the street, kill him. You have that right and that duty. He's a traitor. That's the background. And David now is questioning the decisions of those judges. He calls them gods. Do you indeed decree what is right? You gods, do you judge the children of man uprightly? He's asking here a rhetorical kind of question. We have a situation today in the United States, where a number of these southern states in particular have passed legislation. And immediately the opposition goes to work. What do they do? They ferret out a judge, a federal judge, who has been appointed usually by Obama. And they know that he will find any restrictions on abortion to be unconstitutional. So the single judge somewhere makes a ruling. That piece of legislation passed in Alabama or in Georgia or Ohio, any place else, that is unconstitutional on the face. And I declare that there must be a national injunction against it. It happens all the time. That's exactly what David was facing. There were judges in the land who said, 
David is a traitor. He has to die. There are judges in our land today who are saying President Trump has committed an offense worthy of impeachment. He did this wrong, he did that wrong, all kinds of injunctions coming from federal judges somewhere. That's the kind of situation. David says now in this rhetorical question, do you really judge truthfully? Are you judging righteously? And the answer is a resounding no. Not only is your judgment wrong, but you are evil people. You didn't just make a bad decision on this. You are evil from the bottom, from the day of your birth. You are enemies of God. And you have made horrible kinds of decisions that are not based on truth or righteousness at all. This is evil to the core. We have that kind of situation in Michigan right now. Some of you know Bethany Christian Services. Buckled under the threats from our state attorney general. She said, you must place children into same-sex homes. We don't care about your religious convictions. If you do not follow my orders, you will lose all your state funding. Thankfully, the Catholics said, no, we will not give in. We'll sue you. We'll bring lawsuit against the state of Michigan. Bethany Christian Services made a dumb mistake. And they said, Miss Attorney General, we'll, we'll do whatever you say. That's evil. The Attorney General in this state is an evil person. If she heard me say it, she probably would file a charge against me. But I've known her enough to see that. David goes on here, and he's talking here about original sin. He says, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom like the venom of a serpent. Notice the wording here. Notice they have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear. Whenever you see the word like or as in literature, you have to recognize it's probably a simile. A simile is a literary device by which you compare things that are very different, but you want to make comparisons to create a good understanding, a clear vision. So David is saying, you judges who've made these decisions, you are really like snakes. You're like serpents. And then he goes on a little bit further. Let them be like the snail. Now, a serpent is something that we're all sort of repulsed by. But a snail is about as low as you can get. And a snail, 
leaves a streak of slime wherever it goes. And David is saying, you judges of Israel who made these decisions, you are like snails. You leave slime until you run out of slime and then you die. So there are a whole series of these. Like the stillborn child, these are similes or literary devices to create a picture of the way in which he understands them. But then, what you have to notice especially, verse 6, David is praying to God. He's saying, God, you are the one who has to intervene. You are the one who has to stop these evil people. David is recognizing he can't do it. You and I can't do it. We might have money, we might file a lawsuit, we might go to Lansing, we might go to Washington, but we cannot do it. God in heaven is sovereign. God controls and is capable of directing all the events of men and nations to his own ends and his purposes. The imprecatory psalms, and I've listed a number of them for you on your outline. All of these are ones that are very clearly imprecatory in nature. And they are all prayers to God that he would execute justice and bring about judgment. And then notice the response. The confidence that comes through in verse 10. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. If you and I go to God, this kind of prayer, we might see some very significant events. We might see some real turnarounds. But you might be asking, can I pray an imprecatory prayer? And I would say yes. I think you and I can and should pray imprecatory prayers. Asking God to bring about justice to bring about truth and righteousness. We might not be as graphic as David, but I think we can learn something from David's petition. Notice what he requests in verse 6. Oh God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O oh Lord. David doesn't say, God, kill all of those. No, he doesn't say break their necks. Break their teeth so they can't talk. Make them tongue-tied. Make them so mixed up and confused that they can't function. I think you and I can pray that. I think we need 
to follow Christ's second petition that we read earlier. God, help me, first of all, to truly be submissive to your will, to your law. Help me to live that way so that I, in my personal life, then can really be an example and a witness to others. Also, help me to love my neighbor, because that's one of the primary laws that God, that Jesus Christ, gives us in Scripture. In our culture, in our society, there are a lot of people who define love as tolerance. You have to accept everything. You have to agree with your neighbor. You have to be nice to your neighbor. No, that's not the kind of love that God is talking about. Love is such a deep concern for somebody else's welfare that you dare to go to them and say, no. If you love your children and they do something wrong, you should and you better go there and say no. And if you're dealing with a neighbor, you're dealing with some acquaintance, and that person expresses something that is patently evil, you need to remind them of God's law. And you need to call them to repentance. Now, don't expect that everybody is going to say, oh, I'm sorry, I will quickly repent. No, repentance is never popular. But you and I, if we really care about our neighbors, if we really care about our people in government, we need to go there and say, I love you enough to call you to repentance. And if you don't, I'm going to have to ask God to bring such difficulties in your life that he will bring you to repentance. not going to be easy. Sometimes it might be difficult. Sometimes you might get responses that you really didn't want. But God leaves us with the command to live for him in such a way that his kingdom is advanced. Let's pray. Dear God and Father, Sometimes we get discouraged. Sometimes we're awfully timid. We don't dare to confront anybody. We much prefer to just engage in pleasantries. And yet, Lord, we are called to be your witnesses. We are called to speak your law, your command to our children, to our siblings, to our neighbors, to those we encounter. Give us that courage. Give us clarity of thought and speech so that your word might go forward in such a way that people respond in humility and fear of you. Go with us throughout this week. In Jesus' name, amen.